0: You're listening to episode 37 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the Legion of Substitute Heroes, as well as the villainous Dr. Light. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and oh my god, people, I can't tell you how nice it is to only have to talk about two stories this episode. These last couple episodes have been challenging for me. Always fun, always rewarding, but challenging. Now, for a little while anyway, we're back to doing two stories an issue, and I couldn't be happier to welcome my first guest back to the show. He's the host of Lonely Hearts, First Strike, and Oh Hot Moo or Not. And like me, he's always just one bad suggestion away from starting a new podcast. Please give it up for Ciscoid. Buenos dias, mi amigo.
1: That is not my language. That is not?
0: <laughs> no. Wait, which one are you?
1: I'm I'm the Frenchie. Oh. I'm not a Frenchie. Uh, oh. I, only, I reserve that name for people from France.
0: Okay. Well, I am uh, a
1: French-Canadian.
0: All right. Well, I was hoping that you could tra- help me translate something. Okay. So how do you say in French, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe?
1: I don't see why you would. <laughs> okay. Well, Because I mean, there's, no, there's no place to read it in French, so.
0: Oh, damn. Too bad. That's
1: why I do my podcasting in English, because the comics are in English. There you I, go.
0: I thought you just did it for me. I thought it was all just one big favor for me.
1: I I do it in three or four separate languages separately. (laughs) The English ones are on our network. (laughs)
0: There you go. All right, well, continuing what Secret Origins was, the series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. And if you thought just one story featuring a character who sneezes fire when he or she gets a cold was enough, boy, were you wrong. Now, Sisquid, when I asked you to be my guest on Secret Origins Podcast, like, the first time, which was more than a year ago, you said you were interested in the Golden Age heroes and the Legion of Superheroes. Uh, you are part of the Legion of Super Bloggers, which is why I just had to have you come back in this episode and talk about the Legion of Substitute Heroes,,
1: which For- I think is one of my little corners of that um, on that blog
0: so let 's get to that then. What is your history with the Legion as a whole, and why do you like the characters so much?
1: I only got in on the Legion. I guess fairly late in my teens, but the Legion of Super of Substitute Heroes were in the very first American comic book I ever bought. That's DC Comics Presents number fifty nine, uh, July nineteen eighty three. I'm going by memory, but I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that's right. Superman teams up with the uh, Legion of Substitute Heroes in what is uh, Ambush Bug's second story. He's not quite the meta character that he would become later, but uh, he is a comedy character. He jumps on Superman's back. Superman's flying to the uh, the future, and then uh, he has Superman basically drops him off at the uh, Legion HQ for safekeeping mm-hmm. before he can go back. And the Legion isn't there, so he-, he leaves ambush bug with the Legion of Substitute Heroes, who make a mess of it.
0: Was that one of the first issues that really kind of painted the subs as? kind of buffoons and kind of like clumsy and more comedic characters than all? It really-
1: is the very first uh, story to do that. Okay. Well, I mean, if you look at the Silver Age stories, the characters are competent underdogs, let's say, and mm-hmm. some of them have pretty lame powers. Stoneboy mm-hmm. and, and Color Kid in particular are very, very low-powered. So there is a comedy element to it, but I think the Silver in the Silver Age, all the stories are kind of goofy. You know the proper Legion stories are goofy, so it's not like they were written to be this comic relief team, Uh, and it's so it's only in uh, and I mean in '82, it's just less than a year before DC Comics presents number 59, they were portrayed, they they were fighting the good fight in the Great Darkness Saga, which is Mm -hmm. one of the uh, Apocalypse event stories of the Legion. So and, and they're quite competent. Working there, and it's just suddenly Keith Giffen gets a hold of them (laughs) (laughs) and writes this story in uh, DCCP fifty nine, and from there I I know we're getting into the uh, sort of the publishing history kind of thing here, but they'll only get a uh, the the Legion of Substitute Heroes special after that in eighty five, which is. Very ambush bug like, where the characters are completely stupid and they help uh, Matter Eater Lad fight Pulsar Stargrave, like a major villain, and they, they somehow win. But most of the characters are, you know, it's it's the kind of story that's very ambush bug like in the sense that suddenly things aren't moving fast enough, so you get a memo from the editor, right, splotting a page mm-hmm. and tell, telling Giffen to move it along, and then suddenly everything moves along magically. It's that kind of almost non-canonical story. Mm -hmm. But aside from DCCP-59, that special, and this issue of Secret Origins, that's almost it for the uh, comedy version of the Substitute Legion. And yet, it's one of the most... It's usually what your mind goes to as a reader when you think about the subs, Mm -hmm. uh, either fondly or not. A lot of people (laughs) did not like this approach. Uh, but really, there's like these three stories, and then very, very recently, Brave and the Bold number thirty-five, which mm-hmm. used this version of the subs. Otherwise, they've either been competent. Under- well, they've always been competent underdogs. Sometimes painted as foolish, but never uh, comedy characters like they were in those three stories.
0: Well, I gotta tell you, I've I've went back and reread their very first appearance, and between that and the more recent stuff. I like the direction that Giffen took with them, with making them the comedy group. And just diving back into, as you said, kind of fleshing out more of the publication history, for anybody who doesn't know, The Legion of Substitute Heroes first appeared in Adventure Comics issue 306, which was originally published back in 1963. That story introduced five oddball heroes with lackluster powers who'd each been rejected by the Legion of Superheroes. But when Earth is threatened by an alien invasion, they pitch in and help in their own secret way as the Legion of Substitute Heroes. Throughout the 1960s, the subs appeared sporadically in nine more issues of Adventure Comics, as well as in Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, issue 72, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane, issue 47. They popped up a handful of times in the 70s and 80s in Superboy issues 200 and 211, and in the retitled Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, as well as in the first and third Legion of Superheroes annuals. In 1985... As you just mentioned, they starred in their very own Legion of Substitute Heroes special, which sported a cover featuring a photo of the team paperclipped to a memo from the sales department at DC to editor Dick Giordano asking if he really expected anyone to pay for that comic. And then after the Crisis on Infinite Earths, I don't really know much about the Legion of Substitute Heroes continuity. I'm still not totally clear on the main Legion continuity post-Crisis, so (laughs) never mind this offshoot team. Um, and you did mention the most recent kind of era of Brave and the Bold with uh, J. Michael Straczynski and Jesus Saez. The Legion and the Legion of Subs both appeared in issues, I think, 34 and 35 right. um, with the Doom Patrol. So shout out to the Doom Patrol. So Yeah. yeah.
1: In between all that is the the five years later uh, continuity, which had the subs were an important part of that. Well, actually, we should talk about Polar Boy. Who- graduated to the legion proper mm-hmm. uh, after the special he sort of disbanded the team <laughs> and uh, he had every right based on that performance and then shaped himself up went to the legion said you've got to take me uh, even though there's like a rule against it enough is enough and they take him he eventually becomes leader and the baxter series basically ends under his leadership and he does well he, i guess he makes a mess of it but not because he's uh, he's he's goofy or silly and then the fi- five years later, the Earth is being, has been taken over by dominators, secretly taken over by dominators. They're controlling our government. And the legion of subs have become resistance leaders. And so their powers, they've really shaped up and learned to use their powers in new and different ways. And they are instrumental in liberating Earth, uh, even as other things are happening with the, the, the proper legionnaires. Nice. And from there... Uh, well, that, continu- that continuity collapses, and we only see them as really cameos in the reboot and the three-boot. So either they're being they're, we see them at tryouts, washing out again in the reboot, or in the three-boot, uh, we see a couple of them as members of a rival team, uh, maybe under di- different names, like chlorophyll kid is plant lad or plant boy or whatever he is. And then when the Legion continuity returns... Thanks to Jeff Johns, the Legion of Subs are seen in that Action Comics arc, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes, uh, in one or two issues of that series, where they're f- again an Earth resistance because they're fighting uh, Earthman and his Justice League, this evil Justice League, and there Johns uses them sort of, sort of competently and sort of comedically. So they've got mm-hmm. uh, he's finding other ways to make fun of them. So Thorful kid thinks plants are talking to him, or so. They're more like delusional and a little hipper mm-hmm. in the way they're drawn, and, and we haven't seen them since, except for that Brave and the Bold, which is like a retro story that takes place earlier in their careers.
0: Right. I mentioned back when I did episode 25, which was on the main Legion, that I was only just starting to get into the team. I, I was resistant for a long time. I had read a lot of the stuff. I read the whole Mark Wade era years ago, and I enjoyed it but I still didn't feel like I had that connection with the Legion. I didn't feel like I was really a Legion fan until I started diving into the Great Darkness saga, and something clicked, and I've I've been a fan, and every time I have a reason to pick up a new Legion story, I get really excited for it. I've just barely started reading the Cursed Collection story arc, so I'm not that far in. But because the Legion, for a long time, were kind of low-priority, I did not read this story, The Legion of Substitute Heroes, until a couple of days ago, in preparation for this episode, was the first time I read this story. And I will give my impressions of what I thought about the story after we do our recap. So, people, we are going to take a short promo break, but Siskoid and I will be back in a minute with the origin of The Legion of Substitute Heroes. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen!
2: Listen to me! November 4th, 1988. Earth is invaded by an alien alliance composed of several species, including the Dominators, the Kunz, the Danegarians, and the Durlins. And they want our superheroes. Even though Australia has been decimated, the United
1: Nations' response is unequivocal. Drop dead. First Strike, the Invasion podcast, takes you back to that moment in time and covers the entire Invasion DC Comics crossover issue by issue tie-in by tie-in join bass and ciscoid at fire and or on itunes first strike the invasion podcast a proud member of the fire and water podcast network
2: remember Albert.
0: Origins issue 37 has a cover date of February 1989, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this would have dropped on December 20th, 1988, the last issue of Secret Origins to come out in 1988. The cover is by Ty Templeton and features the Legion of Substitute Heroes trapped in a giant light bulb by the villainous Dr. Light, who is the other story in this issue. Dr. Light shouts, "Ha!" Witless fools, soon you shall feel the power of Dr. Light's three-way bulbs of death, and he prepares to throw the switch on his death trap. What do you think of this cover?
1: Oh, it's great. It's a great cover, uh, and I imagine Stoneboy will save the day somehow, because he's not, part, he's not in the trap, uh, unless he's, maybe it's a bulb we don't see, but I, only, I can only imagine that he will drop from the sky like a stone and break the glass. <laughs> this is how this story would go. That's all it takes.
0: <laughs> Uh it it's a very much a silver age cover. I mean the the art style of course is very different, but this is what you would see the villains speaking the word balloons on the cover, you know, foreshadowing what the story is even though this isn't a story that we get. They don't interact with each other, but it's a cover that tells you a story in itself. The heroes have been captured, they're going to be put into this death trap, the three-way bulbs of death. And the lever that Dr. Light is pulling down has three stages for the light bulbs. Stage one is hurt. Stage two is, oh, now it really hurts. And stage three is
1: kill. And it makes sense. The theme of the issue is really Silver Age characters we now consider to be silly,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was also the fate of Dr. Light at this
0: point. At this point, yeah.
1: And it's the, that's the point where I would have stopped reading comics. So <laughs> Dr. Light, to me, will always be... Because at this point he was like in Suicide Squad, or right, uh, he was just and, about and, to join and, you, yeah, and and a comedy, a comic relief kind of character where the other people thought he was a real loser to always lose to the Teen Titans and you know always being beat, beaten up by kids, uh, and here he's fighting kids because the Legion of Substitute Heroes were obviously uh, teenagers in those original stories, yeah. So it makes perfect sense. It's like a, it's a great idea for a cover.
0: I, I like it a lot, and Ty Templeton does a great job with it. His his style was really good for it. The- Anyway, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of the Legion of Substitute Heroes?
1: Yes, I am. The Secret Origin of Legion of Super-Strike-That-Substitute Heroes by writer, penciler, letterer, Ty Templeton, inker, Anthony Van Bruggen, colorist, Carl Gafford, editor, Mark Wade. Our story is told from future Legion of Substitute Heroes member, Ral Benham, Chlorophyll Kids, point of view. An underachiever on the boring agrarian world of Mardrew sometime in the 30th century. Ral's fortune changes when he accidentally, some would say stupidly, takes a bath in a vat of experimental fertilizer. No comment. He wakes up with the power to make plants grow quickly or more slowly. Yeah. Next stop, Metropolis on Earth and the Legion tryouts. When he fail, Where... I'm sorry. Next stop, Metropolis on Earth and the Legion tryouts where he fails to impress. He's not alone. Polar Boy, Stone Boy, Fire Lad, and Night Girl are all in the same boat, and Polar Boy convinces the group to become a team, on par with the Legion of Superheroes. Finally settling down on the name Legion of Substitute Heroes, they soon make their headquarters in a series of caves, but as they always get to emergencies too late, start to wonder if they're making a lick of a difference. Everyone but Polar Boy and Chlorophyll Kid Quit. But then they notice a ship seeding the Earth with strange seeds. Chloro's powers are instrumental in revealing that each of these seeds is a plant-like invader going unnoticed by the Legion, who are fighting distracting robot ships across town. Polar Boy reassembles his team and convinces them to hop aboard the alien ship and stop the invasion at its source. On the planet of the Tree Men... Huge silos full of those seeds are found, and Chloro makes them grow into full-sized tree men who don't have, then, the capacity to leave their world and invade other planets. They've saved Earth and are too busy celebrating to notice the proper Legion followed the robot ships to that world, too, and might have made short work of the invaders if there hadn't been so blasted many of them. (laughs) And so it ends.
0: And so it ends. I can't imagine why the legion would have rejected Chlorophyll Kid when he explained that he can make plants grow slower. Yeah, uh, <laughs> well,
1: that, that's a that's a new wrinkle. That wasn't in the um, the original <laughs> story uh, exactly, but then the original story was very close to this. I mean, the the whole tree men yep, thing, yep. the whole adventure is the same. They've just added uh, snarky humor, mm-hmm. obviously. The characters are much more, are, are punched up. The dialogue is punched up. There's gentle mocking of Silver Age storytelling, yep, like, yep. how'd they get aboard that ship? Well, in the original story, they, they just do. Mm-hmm. And so here, the narrator sort of mocks it. Well, it's just, it's uh, a lot of luck, and we don't need to talk about this. Right. And we move along. So in that sense, they're still doing the, uh, uh, the thing that, that was happening in that substitute's uh, special, where outside forces are commenting on the silliness of it, right? But it's it's much more restrained, I think. Uh, but yeah, they've changed that. They've changed. You know, a, a few a small details, like well, Cor- even Chlorophyll Kid's younger when he falls in the vat. And, kind of uh, our it,
0: point of view just, character is a little bit different because the original story in Adventure began with Polar Boy. And it really was, you know, he as the leader kind of being the springboard for this. In this story, we spend a couple pages with Chlorophyll Kid first, and we see his job. And he doesn't meet Polar Boy until Polar Boy is leaving the Legion HQ, having been rejected, and they bump into each other. It makes sense
1: because he's also – he's the other believer. Mm -hmm. Everybody quits the team, but he has nothing else. Mm -hmm. Polar Boy has always been shown to be obsessed with being a superhero and being a legionnaire.
0: And I think the thing about Polar Boy – and it shows the fact that he did graduate and make the team – Polar Boy's power is effective. Like it was always kind of like, okay, why did they reject him? It seems like they kind of had to go out of their way to – because he could use his powers really advantageously, whereas somebody like Chlorophyll Kid – other than this one particular mission in their origin story, why else would he need to grow seeds that quickly? Yeah.
1: He did start carrying seeds around. Yeah. yeah to, just to have.
0: <laughs> I can imagine.
1: But most of these guys uh, lost out because they had poor control. Mm-hmm. So they could have reapplied sure, you yeah. know, later and got in. So Polar Boy, makes sense. He could get in. I mean, and eventually did. Fire Lad uh, spits fire, which was not yet, I think sunboy's power i'm not sure i'd have to check the timeline but originally Sun sunboy was just a uh, he had like super radiance he was as bright as the sun but he didn't have flame powers if he had flame powers then it makes sense that fire lad would get rejected because the constitution says you can't have two members with the same power you have to have a unique power you can't have the same power as someone else but you have to have a unique power in your power set
0: right
1: and i'm not sure fire lad had that And he had poor control as well because they they don't really show the tryouts here. They they, they sort of audition for the subs kind of thing. They tell their story to Polar Boy, but uh, in the original story and in this, we never see. It's like a missed opportunity. I would have liked to see.
0: Well, I think it's actually the action. I think they do a good job when he's explaining it here. Was that it's like, oh, you know, breathing fire, spitting fire, that would be useful. But Polar Boy's like, yeah, except he had a cold when he auditioned. So you, I think the unseen scene, you know, the the visual that you make up in your head of him just sneezing and yeah. you know setting fire to Cosmic Boy or <laughs> something, would be yeah, that's uh, funny enough.
1: Originally they made it so that uh, well, actually he had this, this power that he could control like a, a lot like Green Flame in mm-hmm. a few episodes ago, uh, the, the, the short flame coming out of his mouth. But he came from a low oxygen world. So when he came to Earth, right, it was so oxygen rich that he thought he was going to demonstrate his power and then you know, he probably burned somebody's cape off. <laughs> because a lot of what we see later in like the, the tryouts were, the I think, the motor for making the Substitute Legion silly. Because in this story, they all come together. They've all been through the, um, uh, the, the tryouts. We only see a couple of them. So, okay, they failed at their tryouts. Let's become a team. They're just, you know, underdogs, people that were rejected but can still make a difference. Then they, uh, like very early on, they added Color Kid to the equation. Color Kid's power is to change the color of things, which does not seem like an <laughs> A-list power. But, you know, the Legion nevertheless has Matter Eater Lad and the Bouncing Boy on the team. Mm-hmm. There's a precedent for right. lame powers. And still being, uh, you know, a functioning member of the team. So, anyways, Color Kid, and then when Giffen takes it over in uh, DCCP fifty nine, he adds other failed tryouts because every so often there's a Legion story where there's a tryout, and in the tryout there's like a couple of lame ducks who fail to make the cut, and then maybe somebody makes the cut, but he's a villain or you know, there's like tryout stories. It's it's one of the tropes, mm-hmm. and the failed characters either go on to become villains or Giffen absorbs them into his substitute legions, a porcupine Pete, an infectious lass, and Doubleheader whose power is to split into two people over the span of his life. So, when I first saw him, he had two heads, but I've seen earlier stories where he has, like, two faces coming out of the same head. Uh, you'll eventually become two people. So these these characters, <laughs> an antenna lad who can you know, hear radio. Anyway, so you these didn't,
0: characters you didn't even mention my favorite character in this story is the one who doesn't join the team, which is Estimate Boy, whose power is guessing your weight and guessing your shoe size and guessing making estimates, and he's always wrong. Like, even if he was dead on, even if that was a dependable power, what use would the Legion have for it?
1: I know. Well, you say that, but the Legion has employed a character whose sole power was being good at business. That's happened. They've got
0: Brainiac 5 and, like, supercomputers. So it was,
1: like, a Brainiac 5, and then there was a – the character was called Morrissey – Not not musical based, it's okay. uh a- named after a super fan. Uh okay. who had died and anyway. So this character had like super business sense just like Brain Five has super science sense, anyways. And this is recent. This is like part of the three boot. This is like Jim Shooter's mm-hmm. uh <laughs> You know, 2008 series. Anyways, uh, (laughs) Estimate Boy only gets one thing right, and it's how many people are at the tryout, which is 41, which is very easy because there's a a big number on a board (laughs) that says, please take a number, 41. So, fail. Yeah. But you get a lot of these plaid lad. and mm-hmm. uh, th- There are plenty of lame uh, heroes that have tried for the Legion. So when Giffen decided to make it a comedy, he picked from those, the sillier ones or the more interesting ones, and added them to the Legion of Substitute Heroes, which then from then could not be anything but a comedy. Mm-hmm. Because how are these characters, which were last seen washing out of a tryout, how did they become uh, anything remotely powerful? So the first time I met them, they were already at this stage, right? So this is, to me, this is what the Legion of Substitute Heroes should be and always was as far as I knew until I read uh, earlier stories where, you know, they're quite competently fight the League of Super Assassins and the Khuns and whoever else. Uh, but they usually work, you know, from behind the scenes where on missions that the Legion has somehow ignored or uh, originally the Legion didn't even know they existed.
0: I agree like this is the only kind of legion of substitute story- hero stories that I want to read. Like this is the great niche for them. If I want to read the you know the competent superheroes, don't give me these guys. give me like the the A-list legion and then let these guys be the sort of the comedic backdrop. Like I was actually thinking like I want a a series or a, a cartoon of these things and you can give me the legion of superheroes as Either you know your live-action serious series, or you know uh, like a main cartoon or animated series in the Justice League style or the Young Justice style. Give me Legion of Substitute Heroes as like that oddball Adult Swim cartoon, like Rick and Morty or Bob's Burgers, something kind of weird It just doesn't quite fit. And you don't have the same expectations. Like the narrative purpose isn't going to be the same for these guys. Like yeah. I, I could just spend time like in a room with these guys. And they don't have to ever save the day.
1: Um, They did appear in the Legion of Superheroes cartoon.
0: Did they? Yeah,
1: in an episode or two, yeah. And they were pretty much, they were like this, I guess, Mm -hmm. I suppose, but you don't see much of them. I wish this had gone to series somehow, you know, that it would have led Mm -hmm. to a Ty Templeton Legion of Substitute Heroes Mm -hmm. series. But it seemed like, I guess Paul Levitz had a real grip on the Legion and the whole 30th century at that point the you know the series had gone to the Baxter series and it was one of dc's hits i suppose uh, like teen titans and it was allowed to migrate to like better paper and but even in the pages of that book Levitz replaced the legion of substitute heroes so not only did he put polar boy in his own, in the team thereby Kind of destroying the team that existed. Okay. When you use Legion of Substitute Heroes, it would be a, a totally different alignment. Uh, you'd have uh, who was it? Bouncing Boy, Do a Damsel, Cosmic Boy, Night Girl, uh, who was at that point already a serious character because she was Cosmic Boy's uh, girlfriend slash wife, and uh, like Comet Queen, or uh, and the New Karate Kids, so or like a couple of Academy Cadets. Uh, and uh, a few characters that had basically retired from the Legion. So they went on a mission, called themselves the Legion of Substitute Heroes. So really wiping the the slate clean as far as that branding went. Levitz was not interested in these comedy characters, or this version of the characters at all. And I don't know if there was some kind of willingness or to create a Legion of Substitute Heroes series, either after the special or after this story at at any point, but I'm not sure Levitz would have let it go on Mm -hmm. kind of thing, because it Pokes fun at the university strength ability. It pokes fun at him in this. All the the Encyclopedia Galactica stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really his shtick. That was something in his in his series that he, he did a lot of. And here it's almost Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy level stuff. Uh Mar-Drew, jerk water. Give it a miss. Complete entry for Marju in the Encyclopedia Galactica. You know.
0: I love so, that. Such a great way to open up.
1: I still think the the best description of anything is the Legion Clubhouse. Uh, it's shaped like a rocket accident. You can't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> it does look like it's like it's a rocket, you know, planted yeah. in the ground. Yeah. Unfortunately, and you know, we had Justice League International at this point, which was a comedy series. Yeah. This was in the air. This was this was possible and uh, could be a you know successful comic book series at DC at the time.
0: It just didn't happen. Yeah, that's unfortunate because. Uh, As I said, this was the first, like, I just read this story a couple of days ago in preparation for this. I didn't have really any experience with the Legion of Subs or expectations for them. And I think I messaged you as soon as I finished the story. And I was like, I love these guys. I want to spend so much more time... This is one of my favorite stories in Secret Origins that we've covered so far. It's such a a fun story. I... I like these characters. I like how silly they are. I like how... I mean, you can call them pathetic. Some of them certainly are, but there's there's just the, this charm and this whimsy about it that you just don't see anymore. And, and I wish Levitz would have relaxed a little bit and given these characters more of this kind of uh, interpretation, a room to breathe like this.
1: Yeah, but they're losers, but they've got a lot of heart.
0: Exactly. It's, and it's great. It's
1: the, the, it's the uh, Bad News Bears, or it's mm-hmm. the Mighty Ducks, right? So that formula, and they succeed in their own way, right. <laughs> even though you know they're very much they're very challenged. So yeah, to me, um, one of my favorite uh, superhero concepts for sure, and I, I'm glad these few stories do exist, and and it's, it's still amazing to me that these are the best remembered, mm-hmm. not most fondly remembered, I know. <laughs> and it's- not always. I mean, for me, I'm very fondly remembered, but not, but they are the best remembered. It's like these characters were a joke and yeah. people will say that as if it's a bad thing. Yeah. I don't think it is because they were, uh, you know, they still, I mean, it's mystery men or, you know, it, that kind of comedy uh-huh. superhero thing where these losers cannot possibly win. And know, if, the shoveler's not on this team, and <laughs>
0: it plays into an interesting trope that we've sort of seen more recently, which is kind of questioning, okay, like maybe it's almost like a numbers game. Exactly how powerful do you have to be to be considered, you know, a superhero or a super powerful person? Like, if you're just a little bit faster than average speed, if you're faster than human, but you're not faster than light, uh, is that you know a superhuman speed or is that just the fastest person we've we've counted, and I I got to the end of this story, and I thought this story was tailor made for my friend Paul Scavito, who's been on the show before. He covered the secret origin of the whip. And I, I talked to Paul about this before. If he, if Paul was an executive in Hollywood, the first thing he would do would be to green light a show called son of manimal <laughs> <laughs> because he's fascinated by the question is like, okay, if you've got somebody who's like half man, half animal, or if he can turn into an animal, what happens when you break that down like genetically into like the 25% animal, like get like, okay. Does he turn into animals, but only certain animals? Is he only like, turn into hybrids? Is he just a little bit hairier than usual? And those questions fascinate him, which is why I think he would love this whole team and this whole concept. He would love the character who can turn into stone, but then is completely immobile. And if he wants to be useful in a fight, he's dependent on other people picking him up and either carrying him like a batting rim or throwing him like a rock. He would love a character who's who can make plants grow bigger and just hope that he can use that offensively in a fight somehow. Yeah, he doesn't control the plants. He just makes them grow. It's not swamp thing. It's not, you know, poison ivy when they kind of say that she can control creeper vines. No, he just, he makes them grow faster than usual. Or, if you needed to, he can make them grow slower for those times when your ficus is growing too fast.
1: And we haven't spoken a lot about Night Girl, but, you know... She's only super strong at night.
0: Mm -hmm. And I noticed, and we talked briefly about when um, in the the last Brave and the Bold series uh, that Straczynski did with Jesus Saez, uh, when he ended the run on the two-parter with the Doom Patrol and the Legion of Superheroes, and then the second part of it was the Inferior Five with the Legion of Subs. He did kind of have Night Girl as the team leader, and she was the one kind of serious person. She was the one person who kind of looked around and thought everybody else was being stupid.
1: A bit like this. This also does that with her. Uh, she was always like too good for, but she came from a different background as well. She was a superhero right. on her planet. Right. She was where a big Eternal night. Yeah.
0: Right. Big fish in the small pond, and once she comes to Earth, she's like, "Oh, I, I can't do anything unless I'm in darkness."
1: And the only reason she stays is because she has a massive crush on Cosmic Boy. Mm-hmm. So she's come to Earth not to become a superhero, but to become a super girlfriend, <laughs> which is you know it's perfectly Silver Age uh, to do that. And that's what she eventually did. But you know, eventually, all these characters were used, uh, and their powers were used interestingly. So Stone Boy learned to to move while he was in stone form, uh, because when he's in stone form, he's sleeping. It's like a it's a, a, a on his planet, every six months they've got to go into hibernation and he becomes stone. Mm-hmm. So he has a tendency not to wake up. And you know, then he turns into stone, and then Stone Boy, are you in there, uh, kind of thing. So he he learned through hypnotherapy to, to sleep. He's basically sleepwalking. So he's not a statue, but he, so he's sleepwalking through his adventures and can and can move. So they they found ways to. To, to make the characters more powerful and more interesting, uh, the same thing happens to, to, to all of them, really. They grow into their own. And you've got some nice uh, sequences with um, uh, Night Girl teaming up with Shadowlass, so that Shadow Lass, like creates an aura of darkness around her mm-hmm. and makes her go you know, all out at any given time. So as a team, that's, it's true that Stoneboy isn't very useful even in this form without a team. He needs mm-hmm. someone to use him as a bat, but... Uh, and that person has to be Night Girl, I suppose, and so it has to be Night. But <laughs> <laughs> so they've got a lot of challenges. But y- you know, it's it's that kind of together we can achieve more, and that's really the lesson of any superhero team. Hopefully, not just the underdogs, but especially of the underdogs, where your flaws become your your strengths, or you know, the friendship between the characters and the chemistry between the characters becomes their strength. And is there a team more losery than the Subs? I don't think Hero Hotline... I mean, okay, yeah, Inferior Five. The Inferior Five are the the worst possible team.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. But that's it.
0: I was going to make an Outsiders joke, but I, will, I won't.
1: <laughs> uh, the Outsiders are bad for a different reason. <laughs> they're, they're not meant to be losers. Yeah. They just are.
0: Um, a few quick notes on the story itself. On page 13. So after the Legion of Subs gets rejected by the proper Legion... Um, as sort of their consolation prizes. They all get their flying belts. They don't have the Legion flight rings, but they have their flying belts. Yes. But in this scene, when they're meeting up with the actual Legionnaires, we see Cosmic Boy, Bouncing Boy, and Ultra Boy, and they all seem to be wearing the same flying belts. Yes. Was that a mistake, or shouldn't they be having the flight rings?
1: The flight rings weren't invented yet. So When were those? In- um, a bit later. But the flight belts were the standard. Originally, when the the, the Legion premiered, they had like jet packs, and then uh, they had the flight belts. And the flight belt was your consolation prize if you didn't get in. So, like a lot of people get flying power. I mean, I would have gone to, to a tryout with nothing just to get a flying belt. I didn't right? know that. But I didn't. The, yeah, and later on, they invent the um, the flight ring.
0: I've I've read the first couple Legion appearances. Why did I kind of think that those were there right from the beginning?
1: Either uh, in the first appearances, it's jetpacks. It's jetpacks for a little while okay. for the first um, the first couple years at least. But there aren't any, as many stories, uh, but um, if I uh, look at the original, look at scans of the original here, they don't wear anything. But um, but you don't see them flying. I guess they only put them on if they're going to be flying. Hmm. Okay. Those Twinkie belts. Yeah. Yeah, so the characters have, have them on and off. It's something you wear if you're going to fly somewhere. It's not something you have on at all times because it's, it's kind of an ugly yeah. thing.
0: Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't realize it. I, I would be curious to know when the flight ring was invented, like what issue that appeared in or where, where in that history that came about. That'll be homework for somebody listening if you know that <laughs> offhand. Uh, and then the other thing that I had, I, I looked it up. Um, I'm uh, not I've, sh- got, I've got your answer. Oh, the Flight Ring debuted
1: in Adventure Comics number 329 in
0: 1965. So okay, so the, this story would have taken place in 306. I think that was their first appearance. So, yeah, so two, you know, 2 years, years later? Later. before. Yep. So,
1: okay. we're still we're still with Flight Belts for
0: a little while. Okay. I okay, I had no idea. I thought the rings were there from the beginning. All right. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, something Legion else, that, <laughs> Legion. Lore. Uh, something else that I looked up, and I don't know enough about Ty Templeton's work before he joined, kind of the DC Comics. Um, but according to Mike's Amazing World, this was the first script that he ever wrote. Now he did contribute one of the text entries to one of the to Who's Who in the Legion of Superheroes. He he wrote one or two of the entries for that one. So he had. He had written before, but this was the first comic script, according to Mike's Amazing, that he did for DC.
1: Well, he just followed the blueprint of yeah. the original story, yeah. but the humor is his. Right. And you saw that a lot in, in later stories that he would um, contribute scripts to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think where he took license, he did he did a really good job with it. I, I think this is a good synthesis of funny art and funny script, but working together to tell – a story that is full of love and heart, and that sense of teamwork and camaraderie overcoming the obstacles. It's, it's a really good story. I, I loved the heck out of this. This was so charming uh, to revisit, and, I mean, that, that's sort of what I hold so many of these stories to. When I get to the end of it, do I want to read more with this character or this team? And, I got to the end of this one, and I was like, yes. Where can I find that DC Comics presents? Where can I find that Legion of Subs special? That's definitely an endorsement for the story. Yeah,
1: but for us, back then, it would be a 20-year um, wait <laughs> before these, these substitute heroes would, hap- would appear again. Well. But at the same time, if you don't demolish them, if you don't make them this ridiculous, then all the, the later stories where they do come into their own lose their power. Because look at how far these guys progressed. Mm-hmm. is becomes the, the narrative frame of it. Whereas if they were competent and then you see them later and they they're still competent well whatever
0: or in the case of Dr. Light if they started off competent and just progressively got weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker to the point where the only thing you could do to make them interesting at all is turn them into a despicable no, no that that did not happen
1: I, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about okay i, I quit comics in 80 uh, in 1999 <laughs> so those stories i never read those stories all right. All right. to this day I need not read that story.
0: You don't. Yeah.
1: I, I am a denier.
0: <laughs> Other good Legion of Substitute Hero stories that you would recommend? I mean, we kind of... Th- yeah. There aren't a whole lot, so I feel like we've been through those.
1: It's it's tough, because the ones we do, like this Legion, this version of the Legion, mm-hmm. uh, there are four issues where they're funny, basically, ever, in the history <laughs> of comics. Uh, otherwise, appearances are sporadic, and come in short supply, and you're not going to recognize these characters exactly. Uh, I would, uh, however, and she's not part of this story, but Infectious Lass was a member of the Legion of Subs. Uh, she had the power to give people diseases and wasn't very good at controlling them, so, you know, stay close to the bathroom. And uh, But she was an integral part of the Doctor 13 architecture and mortality uh, story, and that's been collected. Okay. And it's very much in this tone. Doctor 13... Assembles a team of cross multiversal uh, from across time, let's say loser heroes, um, and uh, like there, there's uh, there's Anthro the uh, the Cave Boy mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. one end and Infectious Lass at the other, and you've got I don't know, Captain Fear and uh, different people. So that book is very much in this vein and does feature a substitute hero, even though it's not one of these. Uh, from the Secret Origin story.
0: Still. And her power was giving people diseases. Yes. My day, we would have had a different name for her than Infectious Last, but. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's all right. So, but I recommend that. And that's as close as I can recommend yeah. anything that's a collection. You can find easily <laughs> that I forgot. will have substitute heroes yeah. um, uh, in it.
0: I forgot that they did appear in that uh, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. I need to. I'll need to look at that again because yeah. I forgot they were in that. And I know you're right. Like they weren't used to the same effect. But I would no, like it's, to It's fun that to story.
1: see them there, but they've got like one big set piece. Yeah, yeah. In uh, eight, six, in action eight sixty two, I think, or maybe mm-hmm. eight sixty three. So um, still. So. That, yeah, it's it's hard for uh, Legion of Substitutes. I mean, you're gonna have to go to bargain bins and right. try to find these issues. I'm, I'm sure if you can find a Legion of Substitutes hero special for, I don't know, five bucks, mm-hmm. that's a good deal.
0: Unless you're Professor Allen.
1: Oh no! Well, yeah.
0: He's like I don't I don't know any place that has quarter bins anymore. I don't know where he's shopping.
1: Is it still quarters? I think it's anything under a dollar, right?
0: Maybe, Maybe inflation
1: that. has caught up to the good professor. <laughs>
0: liar (laughs) well any final notes on this story or on the legion of substitute heroes in general uh
1: well maybe in the way i'm gonna shill for my stuff uh because usually i shill for a blog of geekery right yeah Uh, and our other shows on our fine uh network
0: by all means plug yourself away
1: yeah. Oh no. Well, you know, uh, you, you you plugged it at the, uh, the beginning of the show, uh, but I'd be remiss if I didn't mention not just the Legion of Super Bloggers, but uh, in particular the Hot or Not feature I run with the girls, the same girls that are on the and this is the feature that gave birth to oh, Hot or Not, one of our shows. Mm-hmm. That started as Legionnaires Hot or Not, where it's a text-based chat where uh, I present the different Legionnaires to these, these women who have no Legion knowledge whatsoever, and then they go to town on him and, and her. Usually the, um, We've done all the Legionnaires, and the reason I mention it is because we're doing the subs right now. Okay. So we're already down four or five subs with a couple <laughs> more to go. Uh, so if you want more funny Legion of Substitute Heroes material, that's one place you can go.
0: I need to go back and look at those because I'd be really interested in what they said about Timberwolf.
1: Not as hot as I was thought.
0: Really? I was sure
1: it was going to like fire on all pistons, but no, they called him a lame Wolverine clone, <laughs> even though he came first. <laughs> and course. then they were not in. They were. They did not like the hairiness of it. Anyway, <laughs> just, I- some, so, sometimes they surprise me.
0: That's why I always – I used to tease – I don't remember who I was. I used to tease somebody that my favorite version of the Legion of Superheroes was the Shi'ar Imperial Guard (laughs) that Claremont and Cockrum and Byrne created that were specifically just ripoffs of the Legion, especially because Cockrum designed half of them based on what – like his rejected concepts for the Legion.
1: And sometimes his not-so-rejected concepts. If you see Timberwolf originally is the same as that that Imperial Guardsman (laughs) – I don't know his name – they did Just the same, same, same.
0: So who? So I'm curious now. Like, who did? Like, if you can remember, who did they rank as like the hottest so far of the ones that you've well, been through? Manel
1: was very, very high on the list. Okay, it's one of the girls um, going as far as marrying him. Okay, so they're married. They're they're already <laughs> squared away. She's chosen her uh, her perfect mate, and it's Monel, So Mon-El did really well. I think the the um, for some reason the uh, the gay legionnaires did very well. Okay, yeah, Even, well, there's, no, there's no relationship there. There's no datability index for them there, obviously. But the, the gay legionnaires always did well. Invisible Kid and or the presumed gay. I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 hard to say who was gay and who wasn't uh, in in the Legion. It's just <laughs> g- gay readers decided certain characters were written as gay, and and eventually it became so.
0: So, why did I just uh, – uh, yeah. the way you phrased that just put in my mind a spin-off. How come DC never published a book who's gay in the Legion? <laughs> I, I don't know well, why that came to me. but that, that
1: book's got a lot of pages, I got to say. Okay. Not, just, not necessarily gay, but um, let's say um, somewhere on that spectrum that – you know, somewhere away from heterosexuality on the spectrum.
0: The way Mike uh, Grell designed some of those costumes – yeah, well, that does beg some questions.
1: The Cosmic Boy's corset, like Cosmic Boy was one of the surprises. The girls, it was the first one we did. The girls hated him actually. Yeah. There was something about him they hated. And they do a lot of projection where they're putting, I don't know, they're, 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 <laughs> they're, 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 they're looking at faces drawn by whoever, whatever the who's who artist is and they're projecting personality traits on that on the character <laughs> that may or may not be part of the equation but then sometimes they really get it right <laughs> yeah so they hate they hate sunboy with a passion he's he's the ultimate big bad okay uh, he's he's exactly the kind of you know the he's he's the guy that he's the player okay and so they hate sunboy they blame sunboy for everything it's become a, a running gag <laughs> You'll see, if you if you read these entries from Sunboy on, it's just, how do we find a way to trash Sunboy in this? And I, I've become complicit where I'll put like a panel of Sunboy being mean to the character they like. Because <laughs> those panels exist. Uh, in, in fact, they exist right here in, in this story we covered. It's Sunboy at the end. Yeah, is he's it, on the TV screen. Is it? Yeah, it's Sunboy. Boy. It's Sunboy yep. saying, "Well, you, you know, he, he doesn't know the substitute heroes were there, but he blames. Mm. He basically blames them for having a hard time. with <laughs> The three men. So, you know, and they and they seem to to like the substitute heroes. So, I, there's there's a a measure of are these people? Do these people feel real to me? I think that usually helps a character if mm. they have flaws. And they're real. They're real people. But yeah, Bonnell is the creme de la creme and then uh, Sunboy is rock bottom they would <laughs> rather date Telus who is a big slug <laughs> than Sunboy oh, who is wow. a pretty boy Adonis right that's that's how it, that's, that's what it is <laughs> that's why that's why people like it I guess uh, real talk <laughs> real talk from real girls about fake men <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a fascinating group you got there. So, uh, we encourage all of our listeners to check out Legion of Super Bloggers and specifically the Hot or Not feature. And then, definitely, if you like what you read there, you're going to love what you hear from Oh Hot Moo or Not, part of the Fire and Water podcast. Ciscoid, what other shows do you have on the network that you'd like to plug?
1: Uh, well, uh, aside from that one, there's um, uh, Invasion First Strike, which uh, chronicles the the entire DC crossover event. And there's uh, Lonely Hearts, the romance comics podcast, which seems like the th- kind of thing you're not interested in, but <laughs> you definitely are. It's got little theater pieces, and uh, it's, Invasion is obviously my bread and butter at this point on the on the network mm-hmm. uh, because people fondly remember that crossover event, and people like indexing series uh, like your own, you know. Yeah, of course. But the other two are basically podcasts that you didn't know you wanted. <laughs> is, is how I brand them because. Uh, there you know it 's like subjects you 're not sure you 'd be interested in, except you know it 's pretty funny and i 'm not, not tooting my own horn it 's really the other people that I work with who uh, mm-hmm. break the the humor and I try to you know try to be the straight man who coordinates the whole thing
0: it, i mean it works neither of those shows would necessarily be up my alley Ohatmo or not or first strike not first strike first strike is great, um, but the Lonely Hearts. But the fact that you've assembled your little, you know, your cast of you know guest hosts and crew and and your rapport, the chemistry that you all have together, you make those shows work, and those are hilarious. Like I, I never get tired of those. Just for for you guys, it's as often or not. It's when you guys go on your tangents when you're not talking about the material that I think that's some of the best work in the in the shows. So. And that's why
1: you like Fern so much.
0: I can't help it. I do. <laughs>
1: He's uh, he's the master of uh, digression. <laughs>
0: well, Cisco, one more time. Thank you for being part of this episode of Secret Origins. Uh, I'm I'm glad you were, you got to share this story with me because, people, like I said, this was surprisingly one of my favorite stories that I've encountered in this series to date. Um, I had no expectations going. For, I actually I would almost go on to say that I had adverse expectations for this particular group. And it sucker punched me with how delightful it was. It's just so fun. Um, I want to read more of these guys. I want DC to publish more with these guys. So thank you again, Siskoid, for being part of this episode.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm glad you didn't go for uh, someone else in the the Superbloggers group. Never. Uh, You know, because you've had me on so many times now. It's, well, same old, same old, right? You'll be back. Uh, But I, yeah, okay. But I do think that the, you're getting, I'm seeing a lot more comments now. On the, um, uh, on the show that the golden era of Secret Origins is over and then Roy Thomas left and now it's, you know, whatever's popular at this point or whatever editors want us to, to read about. I think issues like this prove the opposite. This is not about, I mean, this is in the middle of invasion. This came out in the middle of invasion and it's yep. not about anything invasion related. It's uh, neither story is. And the stories are just, uh, you know, married together. That these are with a theme and these themes I think really brought out a lot of interesting and fun stuff across the second half of Secret Origins this is not your last surprise
0: no I believe it. and I will tell everybody that and I've, I've said it before one of my weak spots in or like one of my you know guilty pleasures I should say in comic books is Super Apes and guess what we got an issue coming up that has three stories of Super Apes Super
1: Apes great issue <laughs> So it's a great issue.:
0: Well, secret admirers, we are going to take another break, and after that, I will be back with Aaron Moss to discuss the origin of Dr. Light. Don't go away. Seriously, don't turn off the podcast. This was long, long before identity crisis. Oh yeah, oh, yeah Oh, oh, oh. Feels good. feels good.
2: Hello, greetings, and hi there. This is the Head Speaks Podcast. Hey there, true believers. Welcome to the Task Force X Headcast. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe, the real American headcast, is the codename for Aaron's daring, highly trained headcast. Hello there, my name is Aaron Moss, and this is the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour. Did you
0: have to do Hello, this? my name is Alexis Mox. This is my show called Alexis B.
2: And all of these shows can be found on the Headcast Network. Look for it on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Also on Facebook by looking for the Headcast Networks. All of the great Headcasts that you love... On one convenient feed. Look for it. The Head Cast Network. See you there.
0: We're back, and as promised, I am once again joined by Brother Head himself, Mr. Aaron Moss, to talk about the origin of Dr. Light. How are you, Aaron?
2: Hey, Ryan. I'm doing pretty good. What We're doing Dr. Light. I thought we were doing the Atom. <laughs>
0: What's the, again, the Adam, what's going on here? <laughs> Missed that one by this much, yeah. Yeah,
2: so. No, yeah, no. Thank you for having me back on, Ryan.
0: No, not a problem. Um, we, well, that's that's actually bringing up a good point, because when I started the Secret Origins podcast, I thought of Dr. Light as a villain for Justice League members like the Adam or Green Lantern or the Teen Titans, specifically. And it right. wasn't until I talked to you a couple of episodes ago that I really learned that he was part of the Suicide Squad, and that was why I asked you to be on this episode.
2: Well, thank you for asking me. It's nice to be wanted somewhere. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is that how you discovered Dr. Light? Was it through Suicide Squad?
2: Uh, you know what? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I have vague... I, I didn't really get into comics, like said, I've said before, until the uh, very late 80s, mm-hmm. so I know i Seen him in some like, Justice League yeah, and some covers for like the Adam and Titans. But yeah, I really discovered him in the Suicide Squad. And then I went back and read some of his older stories through uh, the Digest and other things.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. But yeah, I learned about him and got to know him through the
0: Suicide Squad. My first experience with Dr. Light in the comics was Identity Crisis, I think. Oh, wow. Um, which leaves an impression. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, but after that, I went back and I started, you know diving into a lot more of the Silver Age comics from DC from the Showcase Presents, and I saw him in Justice League, I saw him in Green Lantern, I saw him in The Atom, I was like, boy, this is a a really kind of cool, unique villain, he's got a great costume design, and I like the gimmick, he really should be an A-list villain, how come he gets punked by (laughs) teenagers, and how come they just did what they did in Identity Crisis and just made him, oh, they just... This guy deserved to be a much more significant character, I think. But, well,
2: I think his lowest point was when he was beat down by the little boy Blue. Yeah. <laughs> back in the uh, the Flash.
0: Yeah, that was
2: that bonus book in the Flash book here.
0: That was the one right right <laughs> was, around right before this issue of Secret Origins came out. Yeah. Um, and actually, I'll get to that. Let's let's go through but his publication history. Yeah, I think we're jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> So, folks, Dr. Light debuted in Justice League of America issue 12, published back in 1962. One year later, he returned to fight the Atom in Atom issue 8. A year after that, he appeared in Green Lantern 33. In 1967, he fought the Flash in Flash 171. So, essentially, after challenging the entire Justice League in his first story, he was quickly demoted to reusable rogue for any solo hero. In the late 1960s and throughout the 70s, Dr. Light fought Superman, Batman, Aquaman, the Teen Titans, and occasionally the Justice League again, but he usually only tangled with them when he had backup. In New Teen Titans issue 3, Dr. Light tried to get his street cred back by starting up the gang called the Fearsome Five. That would fight the Teen Titans in half a dozen stories, Unfortunately, the Fearsome Five never could defeat the Titans permanently, and even more than that, Light was constantly undercut by his own teammate, Simon, who proved to be a better leader than Dr. Light anyway. (laughs) Around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths, it seemed like Dr. Light would just quit, as a new hero named Kimio Hoshi appeared to take on the identity of Dr. Light. But the original villain would not go away. After the crisis, Arthur Light appeared in a backup story in Flash issue 12, which we just mentioned, where he escapes from a prison bus, only to be recaptured by a new little boy blue and the blue boys. And yeah, I think, Aaron, I think you're right. That's about as low as it gets. (laughs) But once back in prison, Dr. Light heard a rumor about a certain squad that goes on suicide missions in exchange for pardons. He interviewed for a position in Suicide Squad issue 19 and began his time with the team in issue 24. In all, he would appear in, I think, 13 issues of Suicide Squad. Then, as we said, in 2004... Identity crisis happened, and a number of retcons to Dr. Light's character were established. The first, and perhaps the most toxic, was the revelation that Dr. Light raped Sue Dibney, the beloved wife of the elongated man. As if that wasn't enough of a seismic shift for the character's history... Identity Crisis also revealed that after the rape, Zatanna performed a magical lobotomy on Dr. Light, essentially explaining why he became such a loser that he couldn't even pose a credible threat to 12-year-old kids. As I mentioned, this retcon was so damaging to the character that he was quickly killed off in one of the lead-ups to Final Crisis, and in the New 52, he was introduced as a member of Steve Trevor's Justice League of America only to be killed off in the lead-up to Trinity War. So now I'm assuming Dr. Light will be resurrected in the DC Universe Rebirth event, only to be quickly killed off again in a year or two. (laughs) So do you know of anything that I might have missed?
2: No, I think you pretty much hit. I would say it's Highlights, but we're talking about Dr. Light, so (laughs) maybe Highlights is the appropriate word, I don't know.
0: (laughs) Ah, Puns we can have with this character. (laughs) Are you ready to tell our guests the origin of Dr. Light? I am as ready as I'll
2: ever be. The origin of Dr. Light. Uh, The title of this story was called Oh Those Light Years Ago. Writer was Craig Boldman, penciler Mike Parabek. Inker was Ken H. Branch, letterer Timothy Hawkins, colorist Thomas Zuko. For the story itself, uh, when the power in his apartment goes out, Dr. Light is forced to confront a ghost from his past. He recalled being a scientist at Star Labs with his partner, Jacob Finley. Arthur was having financial troubles, so he sold scientific secrets to an individual named Mr. B. His partner, fascinated with the newly formed Justice League, created his own costume and decided to become a superhero called Dr. Light. Jacob, as Dr. Light, catches Arthur in the act of stealing from the company, but decides to let him go. Arthur later returns to the lab and witnesses his partner death in an accident. He is then haunted by Jacob's ghost. Driven mad, Arthur finds Jacob's costume and uses his light-based powers to drive away the ghost. He then becomes a superhero, I'm sorry, no, a supervillain, of course. Uh, Back in the present, Dr. Light restores the power and drives the ghost away. His neighbor had been listening at the door. He hears Dr. Light talking to himself, possibly proving that Jacob's ghost may have only existed in Arthur's mind. The end. All
0: right, so the first question one might ask is, why this character got a Secret Origin installment? I mean, Aquaman didn't get a j- in secret origin. Wonder Woman didn't appear in Secret Origins. Green Lantern John Stewart didn't appear in Secret Origins, as we've recently covered. Most of Jack Kirby's creations from the 70s, except for Mr. Miracle, did not get a secret origin. Why Dr. Light?
2: Because he has pictures of someone in D.C. in compromising positions.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that he may or may not have put them in. <laughs> Actually... Uh... This
2: is around the time he was showing up in Se- uh, the Su- Suicide Squad. Yeah,
0: this one so I, I think would have been three weeks before issue 24. So I think they were
2: trying to pump him up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And again, everyone knows Wonder Woman. Everyone knows Aquaman. Yep. Again, I don't get me wrong. They deserved an entry in Secret Origins. But the fans know their origins. Dr. Light, unless you're a hardcore fan, an Adam fan, or a Teen Titans fan, you may not know Dr. Light. So... I think they were trying to shine the light, as it were, on a lesser-known character that they're trying to build up a little bit
0: Mm -hmm. as they begin his
2: run in the Suicide Squad.
0: And it is an interesting idea. I mean, 20—well, not 20, but closer to 15 years before Identity Crisis, they are trying to give an explanation for his stark downward track of a career path. I mean, his first appearance, he's taking on the entire Justice League and almost winning— and then from there, he can't beat a single one. It just kind of he keeps going down. So they're kind of crafting this explanation for it. And instead of having Zatanna brainwash him or mind wipe him or anything, they give him this sort of subconscious block. He's got this guilty conscience because he killed his friend. I mean, there's a there is a surprising lot going on in the story. First of all, he comes back... Like, right from the beginning, he's walking home. He's just been beaten up by the teenagers. He just... he's in bad shape. And then we see his friend. His friend is named Jacob. He's a ghost, and he's covered with chains. So, okay. If we've ever seen a Christmas carol, we kind of know where this is going.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought.
0: (laughs) But he doesn't, like... But that's the only thing. He doesn't, like, show him the past, present, and future. So we're not given a christmas carol type of story we're just given a ghost bound with chains for some reason the chains have nothing to do with the story and the ghost just happens to be named jacob
2: i'm sure they were going for the christmas carol vibe mm-hmm. but and i like the fact that they took it down a completely different path instead of trying to, a ghost appearing trying to save his old friend and trying to get him to mend his mm-hmm. ways uh, this jacob isn't quite doing that this jacob if he truly does exist right and again, in Su- Suicide Squad, that brings the light, the whole, does he exist or not? That's another story entirely. Mm-hmm. But this ghost of whatever is, instead of trying to redeem his friend, is trying to basically punish his friend for what he, for he, what he believes is for killing him. Mm-hmm. So
0: This is a haunting. He, yes. Dr. Light is haunted by his friend. So do you think he's an actual ghost or is this all in Dr. Light's head?
2: Based on this story alone, I'm not quite sure. Having read the Suicide Squad run, I don't know if you read those issues, but reading further along, I, I think he's an actual ghost.
0: Okay, so that's what I was i was going to bring up that, because I think <laughs> it's different. I think the impression we're supposed to get from this story is it's all in his head. And I think there are a few key moments in there. The first scene is when he's at the lab, and when he finds the Dr. Light suit towards the end, it's on page right. 16, When the ghost of Jacob uses his light powers to kill Mr. B and his driver in their car. Right. I mean, I guess the ghost could have been doing that, but that is a very proactive thing. For the ghost to be able to kill them in that way... It it's taking this character and everything we know about the the world that this is into a different dimension. Whereas if that was Doctor Light lashing out at Mister B, who's been blackmailing him and holding him down this entire time, through the through like this kind of like broken psychology, that might make a lot more sense. And then the other thing is at the end, the last page, we get those three panels. Doctor Light is haunted by the ghost, and then the third to last panel on the bottom row, he's sitting there and all of a sudden there is this weird rabbit next to him. And I think that was supposed to be like a reference to the rabbit in Harvey. Like the guy can only the guy can see the rabbit and everything, and then outside his neighbor is kinda listening in and it sounds like he's only hearing one voice. Right. So the impression that I got from this story is that this is all in his head, that actually Arthur's guilt over killing his friend has actually been the thing that the obstacle that has stopped him from really achieving greatness as a villain. So,
2: and I believe you're, you're probably that's probably their intent. Mm-hmm. I mean, as far as that bunny, I didn't think about Harvey with that bunny rabbit because right, bunny rabbit's a nightlight.
0: I know, but it's, it's just it, it's oddly weird, placed,
2: yeah. and it's kind of utter, It's the, the uh, perspective on it's kind of off. So, I could see where you get now that you mentioned that. I, I can see the reference,
0: yeah. I mean, but it's just such a weird perspective for the nightlight, and it's so like large and. Right. Colored differently, so I was, why would they show that unless that was supposed to mean something? So that was the first thing I saw, was the rabbit and Harvey. That he's the only one who can see it. So I.
2: It's to think about that, but now that you mentioned that, that's very good point. I, yeah, now again, now that you mentioned, I can't not see it and think of it. So <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those deals. But and that's why I think they were going for here was that it's supposed to be a thing of his imagination. And being a, a wannabe writer myself, I try to think outside of what's. And so that's why I'm not quite sure. I kind of see what they're going for, but I wonder if, I mean, I, in my own mind, I'm like, well, but is he really a ghost? Is it Because he's a ghost, it's possible that they were couldn't hear him anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, I could go either way on this, but I do see that they're probably going for it's all in his head. Yeah. But having read the Suicide Squad book, that kind of changes this whole origin. Whereas if it's not in his head, there's actually a ghost haunting him. But, again, that's for Suicide Squad down the line.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you can share with the listeners, how does that play out with his story in Suicide Squad? And,
2: and again, I'll probably mention this later on under recommended readings. But, yeah, Suicide Squad 52 is called The Death and Life and Death and Life and Death and Life of Dr. Light. Where, basically, uh, his buddy uh, Jacob is – they make a deal with the devil and they both come back to life at different times. And they both find themselves being killed right away. And I think it was the story or so before this one when they were on Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Again, I haven't read re- re-read that story in a while. But I remember, if I remember right, on when they were in Apocula- Apocalypse, apocalypse, uh, the ghost showed up and was encouraging Dr. Light to be heroic and do good deeds. And so when he jumped out there to defend somebody, if I remember right, Darkseid blasts and kills him. And the ghost shows back up, and uh, Doctor Light's a ghost now. And the ghost starts gloating that Jacob starts gloating that he was just urging him on because he knew he'd get killed. Hmm. So it was Jacob, the ghost, was trying to get Doctor Light killed by encouraging him to be a hero, if you will, and do the right thing. So looking at that and going back to this story at this point, it, it kind of changes the entire outlook of it.
0: Yeah, curious. I mean. I I'm sure you can reconcile you can you can make the case that this is I mean I don't think any of that refutes or contradicts this. No. I just think taken with this story taken on its own, I think the impression that you're left with is that it's all in his head. But with further evidence as shown in those Suicide Squad stories, you get the impression that no, it's actually a ghost that's haunting him. So
2: I I think there's enough not really evidence, but enough uh, mm-hmm. whatever in here that makes you think, you know, you, you can question either way. Yeah. But again, I, I do believe they were going for it's in his head, but uh, th- there's not quite enough evidence to prove that. So I, I don't know. I mean, without talking to the writer, was it Craig uh, Boldman? Mm-hmm. Boldman, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, bold,
2: probably, Yeah, we'll probably never know, but...
0: Speaking of the creative team, uh, I looked up the writer Craig Bolden because I didn't know and most of his credits were on Superman-related stories and books. Um, yeah, I,
2: I looked up the same thing myself because <laughs> I'm
0: like, no. Oh. Um, but he also he wrote some of the final stories of Amazing Man, too, which I thought was kind of interesting. And then Mike Parabeck, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, this is Mike Parabeck's first published work at DC. Oh, wow. Um, and this was, I think, you can see that this was before he kind of refined his style because, you know, he would do more secret origin stories after this, and then in the mid '90s he was doing the uh, Justice Society of America series, and yeah. then I think, I think a lot of people probably know him best as he uh, he worked on the Batman Adventures comic strip that was set in the Bruce Timm inspired animated universe.
2: Oh yeah, pretty about that. I, was, I, I remember most from the JSA mm-hmm.
0: yeah. series. Um, but I think he definitely had more of that, a little bit of that cartoony style, and you can see where it's going from this story. It's it's not quite the same there, but it, it, I think it's it's close. You can see where it's headed.
2: Oh yeah, so. no yeah, there's definitely some hints that he's headed that way with, with the artwork in here. Not that it's bad art. I, enjo- I enjoyed the art in this.
0: Oh yeah, I I, I don't uh, think I've ever been disappointed by a Mike Parabek thing. I think it was yeah. great. It's, <laughs> it's unfortunate he died as early as he did. But. Yeah. Speaking of the art, on page 18, the final panel, it's kind of a montage of uh, Dr. Light's greatest and lowest hits. Um, That's all of his his battles against the Justice League. Um, In one side, we get him being knocked out by Dr. Light. Um, On the other side of the panel, we see him being knocked out by Hawkman. We see him getting carried off by his leg by Superman. But in the middle... He's got this disco ball light contraption that he's using against the Justice League. Right. This is an homage to the cover of Justice League of America issue 12. That was his first appearance. Oh, okay. Um, except the figures of the, the Justice League here in this picture are different. Um, obviously, we have Black Canary in place of Wonder Woman.
2: I mean Black Knight wasn't a member of the original member? No, never mind. Nah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not back in 1962, she was Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then where Batman is in this image, uh, that was actually the Flash. And I think, I'm assuming he just swapped them out because he already had the Flash pictured on this page right. uh, in the same panel. Um, so he just swapped one out for the other. And then green arrow at the bottom that looks. I mean, that Green Arrow has the the goatee. That's more of the <laughs> Neil Adams version of Green Arrow. Whereas right. on the cover, he was the original, the classic look, um, Golden Age Green Arrow. But, oh, see,
2: I, I remember this this one little scene. I remember this was from a cover. I just couldn't play, I couldn't say which one it was. So,
0: I mean, it's an interesting story. It is. I mean, Arthur is a bad guy from the beginning. He's stealing from the company. He's got. You know, money problems, and he's selling secrets of Star Labs to this gangster. And like any gangster story, we've heard it before, you know, he thinks he's just going to do one job for the gangster and then he'll be out of this problem. And of course, the gangster's (laughs) like, that's not how this works. I've got you bent over a barrel now. You do whatever I want. Um, And then that just keeps leading him into more and more problems. So, yeah, Arthur is not a good guy. And he's also, we see him pretty quickly from the beginning. He's he's a stupid guy. He's a, he's brilliant scientifically but when his friend dressed as Dr. Light lets him live, like spares him and doesn't doesn't have him arrested he assumes that his friend Jacob is just letting him live so he can later on blackmail him. No, you idiot. He's your friend. He didn't want to get you in trouble. He was trying to save you. I wouldn't say he's an idiot.
2: I, I think it's more along the lines of uh, Lex Luthor uh, back in uh, Superman 2 or 3, back under uh, John Byrne's run, mm-hmm. when he figured that Superman wouldn't be posing as Clark Kent because no one that powerful would be posing, you know, would be willing to but pose just, as a okay. human. I think it's along the same lines that since he's crooked, we've already talked about he's crooked, he's, he's into these, you know, people he owes money to. He thinks along the same lines that everyone's like him. Nobody
0: could be that noble. That yes. Noble. That's a good point. Yeah. That, and that's that, an interesting. You because he does make the comment he thinks that he, he thinks Jacob only wants to get in with the Justice League so he can hook up with Black Canary. Right. So,
2: that's, that's okay. yeah, he's like, well, if I had the power, that's what I would do. So, so he
0: assumes that's, that's what that's Jacob's what doing. Yeah. OK, that's a good read. That might excuse it. That's the way I look
2: at it. Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's not an idiot,
0: <laughs> as we've talked
2: about previously. But that I would rack up to him being more criminal minded,
0: if you will. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other thoughts on the story? Uh, no, again, like I say,
2: not, not a lot to talk about with it, but overall it was a good story. I, I liked it as an origin for him. As we talked about, you know, the artworks, it's Mike Parabek. What can you say bad about him? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> like I say, I don't recall. Uh, I'm sure I've read some of these Superman comics, but nothing that really sticks out at me. But uh, and in fact, I remember looking at this previously because I was curious who this writer was. And I do recall some of these covers. So I know I've read some of the stories, but yeah, nothing really jumps out at me to make me remember this guy. So... But overall, it was a good story. I enjoyed it. And I thought it gave us a very good read on who Dr. Light is.
0: Mm-hmm. Between this story and his subsequent appearances in Suicide Squad, right. I wish we could have seen the redemption of Dr. Light, not in terms of making him a good guy, but making him a villain worthy of the Justice League. and And we never got that. And I think if we had gotten that... Then maybe we could have avoided what he was used for in Identity Crisis. And we'll
2: see how he was used in Suicide Squad. I, I'm fine with that because you know he started out trying to be a Just League villain. When he realized he couldn't handle that, mm-hmm. that's when he started you know attacking the members individually. He got down again. I'm a big Adam fan, but you know he got down to fighting the Adam, a guy that can shrink. Right. And then from there he went to the Teen Titans to, as we talked about previously, he was stopped by the Little Boy Blue. So. Mm-hmm. I, I like the nat the slow downgrade, if you will, of his career, and I mean, why else are you going to join a team called the Suicide Squad? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so good. I, I mean, certainly, when you look at him just as a sort of pathetic figure that just keeps on failing and failing and failing, it is interesting.
2: Yeah, you know, none of what I said excuses the identity crisis story, what they did with him in there, of course. Right, but that's a whole another story entirely.
0: And that's the biggest threat. I think I don't know if there's any way to bring him back from that. Like, even like if you say, well, you know, Flashpoint undid everything. And even if they brought Ralph and Sue back, I don't know how you can use this character ever again and not have that attributed to his character. It's sort, sort of. of like in it's sort of like in the Avengers when <laughs> Hank Pym, you know, backhanded his wife.
1: I was going to make that same comment. <laughs>
0: it, for the rest of time, that is going to define the character. That is always going to be attached to that character. And they're yes. always going to have. And that's why they couldn't make Hank Pym the star of the movie. That's why they had to make right. Scott Lang the star of the Ant Man movie.
2: Right. A slap a woman once, and you're forever branded a, a woman beater. Rape a woman once, you're branded a rapist. Right.
0: And I don't think. <laughs> I mean. Like I said he's got a really cool costume he's got a cool gimmick it would be great if he was you know one of those like classic you know big heavy hitter justice league villains like Despero or you know but he's right. I, I don't think I want to see him fighting I don't want to see him in comics anymore because of that like it's no I would it would be too distracting give me somebody weird like you know bring Doctor Phosphorus or some other weird <laughs> obscure villain who does stuff with like light or fire I don't I don't know anybody else can do this it's not I think it even taints somebody like the heroic, the, the legacy character, uh, Kimio Hoshi from Justice League International, who was only in Justice League International for like two seconds, by the way. Yes. I don't know if there's a way back for the character.
2: I, I personally would like to see him come back, but and I, I could forget about Identity Crisis because I have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I can see where you're coming from. A lot of people can't – again, you've got these Avengers fans who can't, you know mm-hmm. – and it's not only the fans; it's also the writers tend to remember this stuff, right? Because if back to the Ant Man, if the writers didn't bring that up every time, you know, a new writer came on board, and <laughs> I think I, I think you talked about this in a previous episode or somewhere I heard about there. You know, basically the writers come on board, and as soon as they come on board, they want to use bring up, you know, and have them apologize right. once again for
0: hitting Jan, and all that I does is just remind the reader. And I think the same thing to
2: prompt Dr. Light, I think that if they do start bringing him back in, I'd be willing to put money down that Ryder's going to bring that Identity Crisis story back up just to prove how much of a a bad, you know, bad A villain he could be. But I think while I enjoyed the Identity Crisis as a standalone series, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it did some harm to Dr. Light that, as you said, he's never going to get over.
0: Had that been a standalone story not connected to the main DC universe, I think it would have been a lot more accepted. Because I think there are lots of parts of that story that are terrific. It's well written. The art is
2: beautiful. Right, beautiful art.
0: There are some problems at the end when the mystery aspect of it kind of falls apart. Yeah. When when you hold it up to harsh scrutiny, it's like, that doesn't make sense. But (laughs) ultimately, I I mean, I think the biggest thing is it irrevocably changed certain beloved characters in a way where that's kind of not the thing with comics. You don't change them that much. I mean, you kind of have to leave most of the time you have to leave the characters in the same place where they were for the next guy. And we haven't been able to have a good I mean, uh, I guess Ralph Dibney and Sue are back in comics again, but they're in. Justice League three thousand, and I think Shag and Doctor Anch are the only two people reading that book.
2: <laughs> I'm actually reading it too. But, oh, yeah? okay? But well, I no, also, I'm trying to think how much to say here. But have you read the uh, was the Secret Six, the new series that's out?
0: Uh, no, I actually I say new
2: series, but it's been ongoing for. Oh, that's last that, that's year where they so. came
0: back. Sorry, that's where they came back. I thought. Yeah, it was it was uh, Booster and Blue Beetle that went to Justice League
2: three. I'm a little behind on Justice League three thousand or three thousand one. I'm a little behind on that, so I wasn't sure they came back in there. But yeah, in Secret Six, years. they do. I haven't seen Sue yet. Again, I'm an issue behind on that one. Mm-hmm. But Ralph does show up, and again, I'm trying to watch so I don't spoil anything for people. But mm-hmm. they revealed this several months back that Ralph does show up in that book. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, definitely check out that if you, you want to see more of Ralph. But he's not the same Ralph, so...
0: And uh, But also, I mean, the fact that it's in Secret Six, which is a book that's not going to last. Right. They didn't bring him back in Justice League. They didn't bring him back in Flash. If anything, that feels kind of like... And uh, I'm not disrespecting Gail Simone, because I love her as a writer, and I'm sure the book is great, but that feels like a stealth approach to bringing him back. That feels like oh, kind of dipping their toes in the water. It's like, can we bring this guy back? Will people accept him and not think of him and, and like the stink of what happened in Identity Crisis.
2: Well, oh, it's most definitely a stealth approach because when they bring him in, you don't know it's him for a while. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a way to sneak him in the back door basically into the DC. Like, uh, here's Ralph. You guys still like him? You still want Ralph Digby?
0: <laughs> Those are the characters I would love to have Ralph and Sue back. And I can, I can have them back and forget about the Identity Crisis thing. Like, I don't think that moment has to define them. And maybe it's because they were the victims, but victims will recover, and we expect that of them. Especially the heroes. Right, exactly. And you could say it's the same continuity, you could say it's a different continuity. For me, I don't think I would care. I don't think it would matter to me. I would accept them back as the heroes who are just recovered from that one event. I don't think that is a defining thing. But for the villain, for the perpetrator (laughs) of the crime, yeah, sorry, you don't get to come back from that one as easily. If at all.
2: Right. So. Yeah, and sadly, I have to agree with you on that. As much as I could ignore that story and, and separate it from continuity, yeah, there's too many fans. And as I said, too many writers, I think, out there that would, if they did bring Dr. Light back into continuity proper, they would keep going back to that well. Because again, it, it was, for all the problems with that identity crisis storyline, it was a good story. And it was, you know, as you said, beautifully drawn, uh, except for some minor quibbles with the ending of it. Yeah. It was a well written story.
0: It, like when I was going to my recommended readings, I was like, yeah, if you want to know more about Dr. Light, you should read Identity Crisis. Yeah, I mean, that's it's, on my list also. It's, it might be the only and last thing that you read about the character. It's certainly, it could very, just as easily be the death of the character. Forget about what happened to him in Final Crisis or whatever <laughs> one before that. But it's an important story for his career. Aside from that, you know. His Silver Age appearances, most of them have been collected in either Archives or Showcase Presents versions. Just which character do you want to see him in, whether it's Adam, Green Lantern, Justice League.
2: Pick your favorite hero. Right.
0: Um, A (laughs) lot of his, his if not all of his appearances in New Teen Titans were collected. Those have been in either Omnibuses or New Trades. And big for you, I'm I'm sure you had this on your list, Suicide Squad Volume 3. That yes. trade paperback just came out, and, and that collects 4th
2: if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, the fourth one I think is coming out soon. So yeah, but volume three collects issues 19, and 24 and 25, and those are his first three appearances in that series. So,
2: and then he's big in that series for for the next year or mm-hmm. so, and then he comes back into the series a little bit later. So yeah,
0: definitely. Did you have any other recommended readings? Or? Uh,
2: the only other I can I can think of offhand is, is still Suicide Squad. Yeah. It's the one I referenced earlier, yeah. uh, issue 52. Jim Fern was a guest penciler on that issue. The art on it's not fantastic, but the writing on it is is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Ossinger and Yale writing the story. So yeah. if you can get past the the somewhat cartoony
0: art. It's very stylized art. It's very – Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah, if you get past the art – the, like I said earlier, that's basically uh, the devil sending the Dr. Light's back to Earth one at a time and they both keep dying. <laughs> that part's fine. It's mainly the, the beginning with the wall and uh, a lot of their interaction on Earth is kind of real too cartoony. But the, the parts where he's in hell or him dealing with Dr. Light's dealing with each other, I think is really good. And again, if you ignore the, the cartoony, the very stylized art on it, the story itself is, is a great a great return of Dr. Light in my opinion. Yeah. So that'd be the only other I could really recommend offhand besides what we've talked about.
0: All right. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for being on another episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Oh, where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you?
2: Uh, well, I'm showing up, uh, I've got four different podcasts. Uh, they can all be located on the Headcast Network. That's my own feed. And my different shows, I've got Head Speaks, where it started off me ranting about things. It's turned more just to a geek talking about comics and books and whatever I want to talk about. I've got the Task Force X podcast that we mentioned, which looks at John Ossinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kupperberg's Checkmate series from the late 80s, early 90s. I've got a podcast I do with uh, a couple of other yokels called G.I. Joe, a real American headcast, where we look at the G.I. Joe comic book series from the late 80s through the 90s, and also we look at the animated series, and occasionally we look at the toys and other things. So lame. Well, yeah, I try to get some better co-hosts on that one, but really? that Straight from the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Shag was busy, so. Yeah. <laughs> and then my newest one is uh, the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, where I look at the Will Payton Starman and the Mark Shaw Manhunter series. Very and again, true. they have their own feeds, and again, they're all available on the HeadCast Network.
0: Awesome. One more time, thank you very much for being part of this episode.
2: Oh, thank you for having me back after last time. I appreciate the the callback.
0: (laughs) One quick note before getting into the listener feedback section. Aaron and I mentioned that Dr. Light's friend Jacob first appears as a ghost with chains, inviting a comparison to Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But that's where the comparison stops— This isn't a redemptive story, nor is it a Christmas story. However, I forgot to mention, the issue was published on December 22nd that year, just three days before Christmas. Maybe they knew that when they wrote and drew the story. I doubt it, but that was the only connection I could come up with. Anyway, the Secret Origins podcast has received a couple of new iTunes reviews in the last couple weeks, almost as if people heard about a contest of some sort. We got a review from former guest FKA Jason, who said, No secret, a great podcast. This one is in my top five. I haven't missed an episode yet. Ryan and his guests make some great observations about this awesome series, and they pull no punches. If the artwork is dodgy or the storytelling nonsensical, they won't hesitate to point it out. But it is clear Ryan and his guests were true fans of the series. If you like the DC Comics post-Crisis universe, do yourself a favor and subscribe to this podcast. If you don't, subscribe anyway. You won't be sorry. We got a review from Trig 3 Shh, it's not a secret anymore. One of my favorite comics from the 80s. Join host Ryan Daly and his guest hosts as they explore the origins of some of DC's greatest and not-so-great heroes and villains. Come check it out. You never know what secret you might discover. Uh, We got a review from Mike Gillis, friend of the show and the host of Radio vs. the Martians. Ryan Daly is a great tour guide for the characters of the DC universe. His passion for the subject is undeniable, and he has a talent for moderating thoughtful conversations. Thank you. Uh, We got a review from Snapper Carr, not... Whew, that was close. So glad I subscribed to this podcast. The in-depth discussions Ryan Daly has with his guest co-hosts about the DC characters being featured in each issue does not disappoint. If you read comics in the 70s and 80s like me, you'll be taken on a nostalgic adventure that will sure to bring a smile to your face. And finally, we got a review from Piper Ruth. Ryan Daly is a nuclear sub and a tarnished pirate who likes the comic book podcasting world. He decided he would form his own band of secret admirers into a community of his own. He decided to review the Great Secret Origins series published by DC, tackling each story with a different co-host. He is an engaging host who makes each episode a lot of fun to listen to, and he makes great choices when it comes to the guest co-hosts. I plan to collect the missing issues I do not have yet, read them, and listen to the corresponding show for great insights, publication history of the characters, and other bonus content. The show is a worthy companion to the comic books. Thank you very much. Thanks to everyone who writes a review for this show. Remember, if you submit a review for 12 out of the 14 shows on the Fire & Water Network, you'll be entered into a contest to win some free comics, including a copy of Secret Origins issue 41, signed by Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. It's like Loot Crate, but with a 100% chance of getting an issue of Atari Force. And all it takes is a couple minutes of your time and some... Hopefully generous words about the fine shows on the Fire and Water Network. Okay, on to the social media. Secret Origins Episode thirty six received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Brian Mulvey, Captain Marvel, Cindy Womack, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comics in Color, Dan at Dinosaur No One, Diablo Frank, Film & Water Podcast, Fire & Water Network, G, which is at Sophie Turner with two U's, I'm sure that sounds legit, Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arugeo, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Jeff Bowman, Jeffrey Brown, The King of Olympia, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast, Kyle Benning, The Lantern Cast, Mario, at Luther Lang, Pointless Ephemera, Pod Dylan, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siscoid, Sin, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarbrough, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. New Facebook likes and shares came from Aaron Moss, Abadaba, Al Sedano, Alan Middleton, Andy Kapelish, Anthony Gerardo, Bradley Austin Null, Chad Bokelman, Chris Franklin, Christopher Ouellette, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, David A. Pascarella, David Ace Gutierrez, David Edward Cooper, David Foster, Dale Dale, Debeche. Doc Midnighter, Feathers and Foes, The Fire and Water Podcast Network, Firestorm Fan, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Greg Arugio, Harlan Freilicher, Headcast Network, The Irredeemable Shag, Jason Pope. Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Jonathan Brown, Justice League International, Bwa Ha, ha Podcast, Kal-El Keith G. Baker, Luke Dobb, Mark Marble, Max Romero, Michael Wagner, Nicholas Prom, Paul at Back to the Bins, Robert Ward, Russell Burbage, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Silver and Gold Podcast, Ciscoid, Valdis A. Kunzins, Van Z, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zeb Oswald. People, if I forgot your name, I sincerely apologize. I'm getting a ton of likes, shares, and retweets, and I'm grateful for every one, but sometimes putting them all together a week or so after the fact. Eh, some share or mention might get dropped. If I didn't include you in the list, let me know and I'll be sure to correct it next time. Okay, moving on to the website comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, I'm not mentioning entire comments, just cherry-picking bits and pieces. You can follow the entire threads and conversations over on the website post. And just as a reminder, the last episode covered the origins of Green Lantern Hal Jordan, his Eskimo mechanic Tom, and Poison Ivy. The first comment came from the irredeemable David A. Gutierrez, who said, I liked what Neil Gaiman did with Poison Ivy in the Black Orchid story. He gave her more depth in a few pages than most of her appearances did. After that, I mentioned that I've never read any of the Black Orchid comics, but the character has grown increasingly more intriguing the more I hear about her. David and Jeff Nettleton both recommended the three-issue story by Neil Gaiman, and if I ever finish this podcast and have time to read books for pleasure instead of research, I will definitely have to pick that up. Rob Kelly from Pod Dylan, the Film & Water podcast, the Fire & Water podcast, the Power Records podcast, and the upcoming Tom Waits for No Man podcast said, Great cover to this issue. As Ryan points out, the design bucks the usual trend, which would be to show as much of the woman's body as possible. Instead, it's a giant close-up, which really works. A few other people complimented the cover to issue 36, and... As I mentioned on the episode, I like the image, I just don't think it's a great cover for a Secret Origins book. But that's me, and it sounds like I might be in the minority. Uh, Rob continues, Always enjoy the Franklins appearing on a show together, and they did not disappoint. Much like the Shazam and El Diablo SFX, I think Ryan should use Cindy's derisive cough snort when the live-action Poison Ivy is mentioned in any future episode. Well, of course, Rob ought to know that it is not a sound effect for El Diablo, but rather El Castigo, better known as The Whip. And Rob concludes with Fairly amazed Ryan didn't use the coaster's Poison Ivy in this show, but he often doesn't go for the obvious. I am baffled at the inclusion of the Mighty Quinn, even though I always enjoy this cover of a Dylan song. And Jeff Nettleton suggested Alice Cooper's song Poison. I don't know, I thought Belle Biv was pretty damn obvious myself. And as for the mighty Quinn, it's an Eskimo! Speaking of Jeff Nettleton, he left a few more comments. Darwin Cook's passing was so sad. New Frontier, in my eyes, is one of the best essays on the nature of heroism that you'll find. He shows heroes in bright costumes, professional uniforms, and ordinary clothes. All of his characters demonstrate a deep humanity, even the aliens. I love that he said it in the late fifties with that mid-century modern design sense, the space age architecture, those fashions, and the decorative motifs. He knew the period well, one of my favorites from a design standpoint. He captures much of the feel of things like the right stuff, which makes it fitting that we are introduced to Hal Jordan as he meets Chuck Yeager and Pancho Barnes. Uh, Jeff also praised Neil Gaiman's work and the poison ivy story in issue 36. He goes on, vaguely interesting bit of trivia about the word Pavane in comics. Pavane was a recurring character in Doug Mench's work on Master of Kung Fu. She was a femme fatale slash mercenary who was introduced as one of a couple of assassins or bodyguards for the villain Carlton Velcro. She would display shifting loyalties across the series and a deep respect for Shang-Chi. She dressed rather like a 1970s Comics Code version of a dominatrix, in a leather outfit and a whip. You know, I've only read one issue of Master of Kung Fu. My wife sort of inherited it from her uncle. I loved the story, and I want to read more, I just haven't had the time. Again, put it on the list for when I'm done with this podcast. Flanger, better known as Paul Hicks to you non-Australians, one of the hosts of Waiting for Doom, said... One point of order, I believe the explanation for Ab and Sir being in a spaceship in relation to losing trust in the ring came from the Alan Moore story in Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual No. three. John's built on that story to introduce slash include Atrustis. Well, I don't know who this Alan Moore guy is, and I kinda doubt anyone at DC would have taken one of his ideas and built upon it. Harlan Freylicker seems to agree with Paul, though. He said, Since Jeff Johns is about my age, I can only assume that he read that Alan Moore story as a teen and immediately started spinning out his fanfic follow-up. By the time he got to the job writing Green Lantern, he probably had several years' worth of stories all ready to hand over for editing. Meanwhile, as a teen, I also came up with the idea of a multicolored Lantern Corps, and had my own headcanon versions of how The Blackest Night Prophecy would play out. I told nobody, didn't write anything down, and basically did nothing with it. And now Jeff Johns is hugely successful and making a ton of money, whereas I... Kids, follow-up matters. Good advice, Harlan. You poor bastard. Sean, just Sean, said he also really liked the cover to issue 36. Given Poison Ivy's sultry nature, a close and personal cover like this works. And since Hal was in the doldrums of his who-am-I-what-am-I-worth phase, his less-than-pleasant demeanor on the cover sort of represents that. If anything, the black background is the only problem area. I mean, really, they could have made it a shade of green, and I think it'd be understandable. Chris Franklin from the Supermates and Power Records podcast said, Loved the Green Lantern oath. Nice job, guys, even if it was a tremendous pain in the took us to pull off. Thank you very much for recognizing that and saying so. Uh, Chris goes on, As for the presence of the classic Green Lantern, Green Arrow page by Adams, maybe it was there because both Owsley slash Priest and Bright are black, and this story means something more personal to them. Hal joins a black cast at the end of the story as well, of course. Okay, that's true, but as I mentioned, the story isn't about race. Chip and the Gremlins could have been from any race or background, and it wouldn't have changed anything in the story, so I don't see the connection being made between that page and the rest of the story. Then the irredeemable Shag popped in to take us all to school. It seems Shag objected to the Lantern cast fellas and I calling the Jeff Johns era the most prolific era for Green Lantern comics. Shag reminded us that his era, the early 90s, between Emerald Dawn and Emerald Twilight, saw a ton of Green Lantern material. As Shag outlines, the Green Lantern franchise in this period had three monthly series, one quarterly series, and several miniseries and tie-ins, including Green Lantern: Emerald Dawn, the miniseries, Green Lantern, the new ongoing series. It started off popular. By 1993, the shine had worn off. Eventually, led to Emerald Twilight in 1994. Green Lantern Emerald Dawn 2, a follow-up miniseries. Green Lantern Core Quarterly, a quarterly series that ran until 1994. Green Lantern Mosaic, ongoing series that lasted 18 issues. Guy Gardner Reborn, a miniseries. Guy Gardner, the ongoing series, that lasted 44 issues. Green Lantern Ganthet's Tale, a one-shot, but wildly popular. Hal was the leader of the Justice League Europe team towards the end of this era. Dark Stars, which was an ongoing series, not quite a spinoff, but deeply rooted in the Green Lantern mythos, and plus John Stewart became a Dark Star. Trinity crossover with Green Lantern, Dark Stars, and The Legion, giveaways in stores including a glow-in-the-dark Green Lantern ring, and appearances in every annual crossover and other stuff I'm sure I'm forgetting. Uh, then Mark Baker Wright said, So much of that write-up, Shag, had nothing whatsoever to do with Hal Jordan. Green Lantern-related, sure, but they were talking about Jordan after all. Uh, I mean, I'm willing to allow it. There is a ton of Green Lantern material on Shag's list. Certainly not every Green Lantern-centric book that has come out in the last couple of years has had Hal Jordan at the center of it, but, I mean, if we really want to compare the two, the 90s didn't have a Larflee's Christmas special, so step off, Shag. Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast and the DC Bloodlines podcast on World Spine Network said, you know, before I even read Frank's comment, I'm going to assume that Frank loves Hal Jordan, can't get enough of him, easily his favorite Green Lantern character. Let's see if I'm right or if Frank surprises us. Green Lantern was another OG superhero I knew first from Super Friends and UHF syndication repackaging of the Superman-Aquaman Hour of Adventure. At some point in the early 80s, I also got to read some of my uncle's O'Neill Adams Green Lantern Green Arrow stories, which were unlike anything I'd ever seen before and a feast for the eyes. The first time I ever bought one of the comics was Green Lantern 173 in late 1983, which I suspect was motivated by the cover hype, beginning a startling new chapter in the life of the Emerald Crusader. It was the second issue of the Len Wein-Dave Gibbons run, and the first since the end of Hal Jordan's year-long exile from Earth. None of which meant anything to me as a kid, because I only remember one thing about that story. I thought the javelin was a cool-looking villain, but found it monumentally stupid that one of his spears was impregnated with yellow paint that was capable of shutting down GL's power ring for a cliffhanger that left him plunging toward his death. I was curious enough to flip through the following issue on the newsstand to confirm that Green Lantern had survived Sherwin-Williams, but I didn't buy it and don't even recall scanning any other issues until Tales of the Green Lantern Corps Annual number 2, which looked fascinating and scary at the B. Dalton Bookstore, where I left it in 1986. Perhaps regretting this decision, I did buy the following year's annual at Walden Books and loved the imagination and scope of the book by creators like Alan Moore, Kevin Nolan, Bernie Wrightson, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praised be his name, and more. Again with the name-dropping Alan Moore, who is this guy? Uh, Frank goes on a bit about the Green Lantern superpowers action figure and collecting the series once Kyle Rayner became the hero despite not liking Kyle that much. By that point, I was starting to get serious about collecting DC Comics as my primary universe and began investigating his history and back issues. Thus began the Flash-Green Lantern paradox. Despite having no interest in the Flash Mantle, an overly praised costume, or the power set, I found that I genuinely liked Barry Allen when I encountered him in his own stories and in the JLA. Despite loving the powers, look, mythos, and thousand strong core, I learned Hal Jordan was a boring, flaky, temperamental schmuck. When I read the Bronze Age stories, especially the O'Neill stuff that came across as much too silly and self-important for an older fan, I could see the emotional and mental instability that validated his villainous turn as Parallax. I'm sure Frank means Hal's turn as Parallax, not Denny O'Neill turning into a villain, but maybe. I tried to go back to the John Broom stuff, but it's of a piece with the other Silver Age DC crud that puts me to sleep. What's worse is, I like everybody around Hal Jordan. Carol Ferris is a solid female character and a story motivator, while Tom Kalmaku was an early, rare example of a non-white supporting character treated with respect and intelligence. Uh, up to a point about the respect part. Guy Gardner is a unique and hilarious anti-hero, while Alan Scott is one of the finest examples of the classy elder statesman superhero that could have been played by Gregory Peck. I came around to Kyle Rayner when he was played as the enthusiastic rookie of the Magnificent Seven JLA, and he provided a sense of legacy through his associations with second-generation JSA types like Jade and Obsidian, or no longer Teen Titans like Donna Troy. Then there was the thrilling and bizarre variety of corpsmen, from Katma Tui and Kilowog to Salak to Chip, all of the worlds and dimensions and factions and concepts. The entire DC universe is steeped in the lore of the Guardians. Green Lantern has one of the best origin stories, an atomic-age sword in the stone, with a heaping helping of lensmen and other pulp mid-century science fantasy, all in service to a vanilla-flavored douchebag who cast off his ring and responsibilities at the slightest provocation while hanging out with the one dill hole even more insufferable than him, Oliver Queen. Perhaps worst of all, there is Jon Stewart, a thoughtful and meticulous intergalactic defender and architect of energy who is as courageous and capable as I expected Hal Jordan to be before I knew better. My two favorite Green Lantern runs of all time were the lead-in to issue 200 and the Mosaic series, both of which starred the true greatest Green Lantern of all time, which has been demonstrated again and again. When Jon Stewart was tapped to co star in the Justice League cartoon and aborted 2007 movie, it was certainly a nod toward diversity, but it was also an acknowledgement that he was the more dynamic and capable of the two core men from having a planet blow up on his watch when editors wouldn't allow Hal the same liability, to butchering his alien wife while he was depowered to spice up Hal's cereal, to conveniently forgetting he was the first human guardian while canceling all the satellite GL books in anticipation of Emerald Twilight, to being crippled while his dark stars were mauled to prop up a Kyle Rayner villain, to being retconned into a traumatized stoic jarhead that diminished his versatility, there's no obstacle they won't place in Jon Stewart's path to keep him from outshining that turd Hal Borden. Even after his big-budget motion picture failed spectacularly and his short-lived cartoon sputtered away, DC still wants us to buy the reborn Hal Jordan or the half-assed side lanterns created by his biggest corporate champion, Jeff Johns, while Stewart gets shooed off to one side somewhere, told to count his blessings that he wasn't killed off like they not so secretly planned to a few years ago. I look at Hal Jordan and I see the false narrative of how great America was in the year of his birth. I see the reds on the run, the star sapphires consigned to their boudoir, and the other colors in their proper place. Hal's part of the myth is that if you worked hard and conformed to the machine, your well-earned pension would afford you a comfortable early retirement and a split-level home behind a picket fence even whiter than your skin and teeth. Hal Jordan is the hero of 2,800 second chances, whose hands are never so bloody that he can't wear ivory gloves over them, who is always judged superior to his less waspish contemporaries despite near-constant insubordination, terminations of employment from both sides, toying with the space-time continuum on personal whim, sadistic mass murder, and that one lengthy episode of being the most ruthless and implacable enemy his organization ever faced before lawyering up and chalking it all up to that yellow-skinned devil made me do it. Hal Jordan is the superheroic icon for no sin ever being so unforgivable, and no burnt bridge ever failing to be rebuilt so long as it comes between a straight white male citizen of the United States of America and his culturally mandated bounty of rights and privileges above and beyond those he would afford anyone not of his kind. Over forty years later, Green Lantern still hasn't much bothered with the Blackskins, unless you count Blackest Night, which is a statement unto itself. Will to power. Manifest in this emerald gladiator, this Caucasian champion who can do virtually anything but chooses to do virtually nothing productive for actual human beings in favor of engaging in violent crusades against the imaginary existential threat of evil alien invaders. I get enough of that through Fox News. Thanks. All of that, and Frank didn't even comment on Hal sleeping with a 15-year-old alien girl. Well, Regarding Jon Stewart, since we won't have the chance to do an origin story about him, I have some thoughts on him that I left over on the Lantern cast a couple of months ago, and I also shared similar comments on the Pulped Pixel podcast when they were talking about black superheroes. My feelings on Jon basically come down to, he is the Green Lantern I want to love, but really have no reason to. Uh, Frank enumerated the many ways in which Jon Stewart has been ravaged by DC editorial, and I think that's because he's sort of handicapped by the era in which he was created. John Stewart doesn't get a secret origin because his origin isn't iconic or timeless. He was created and existed solely to be the Black Green Lantern because DC wanted one. What made him special at the time was his righteous anger, but that mostly came off as irritation. And the book defined his fearlessness as his willingness to not hide behind the mask. Well... That's easy to do when you have a superweapon on your finger. Hal at least flew jet planes that could explode beneath him at any minute. And I think DC realized that at some point and tried to course-correct in the 2000s by making John a marine, but that just made him boring, and it trapped him in the stoic soldier-shaped box, and now that's his whole life, his whole attitude, and it takes away any contrast or supporting cast he might have earned on his own. What I would love for DC to do is, ironically, go back to the character's roots and embrace the social commentary of the character. Make it meaningful that he's the Black Green Lantern. Jon Stewart should be an activist superhero. He should be in Ferguson and Baltimore, standing up against police forces that gun down unarmed black teenagers. Hashtag BlackGLsMatter. That is where you can see his willpower and his fearlessness, and that's what makes him worthy of the ring but I don't think we're going to get that anytime soon because the new stars of the Green Lantern comic are Simon Baz and Jessica Cruz. Moving on, Ange from the Supergirl blog said, put me in the mix of those that like the cover. After a series of color form covers, this one, the extreme close-up, The Beauty of Ivy, really works. It kind of shakes things up. In this issue, it was the Poison Ivy story which really stuck out. This just read differently than most of the origins that we had gotten in this book. While many had some sort of framing plot, this one really had the origin as almost a subplot. This really is a horror story. From early on, you know that this is not going to end well, that Stuart is doomed, but you have to keep turning the pages, dread building, until you get to the end. This really was gut-churning, and Buckingham's art was a perfect fit. Well said, Ange. Darren Sutherland from Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and now Xenophile said, Ryan, you got a big awe, that's sweet, from Ruth over your geeky wedding story about why you kept the Green Lantern action figure for yourself. That's probably the most emotion she's ever shown for a story about Green Lantern. So cheers. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Darren goes on to say, Chris and Cindy's coverage of Poison Ivy was hilarious. In fact, I think Cindy has the potential to become a formidable DC villain. Poison Ivy's fury certainly pales in comparison to Cindy's during this particular episode. I plan to tread very carefully if I ever have the pleasure to meet up with Chris and Cindy at a convention. Uh, And Chris responded, Logic Glass goes rogue, the epic heel turn coming this fall to Supermates. Jimmy McGlinchey actually left a comment regarding the Tom Kalmaku story. No way! You were asking about the time when Tom owned a chain of garage stations. I think I read that in the Showcase Presents volume that after Hal quit Ferris and became an insurance claims adjuster after Green Lantern 50, he ran into Tom who told him of his new status. Hal Jordan quit his job as a test pilot to become an insurance claims adjuster. I think that thought just might have retroactively made me hate the character. Anyway, Jimmy also mentioned that the Poison Ivy story was used as the basis for a very good Legends of the Dark Knight story by John Francis Moore and P. Craig Russell, with Phil Sylvian from the Black Orchid mini giving Batman the background to Poison Ivy. Ivy always works well in groups, and she had some great character moments in Suicide Squad and Gotham City Sirens. Finally, Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl said, You're spot on. This is far from a great take on Hal's origin. We should have gotten more of Hal being awesomed by his new powers and learning how to use them. Or Chip becoming a lantern full-time, transformed into a toothy wee critter. (laughs) Get it? I too hated that old black guy panel for the reasons given. I wish someone would reveal that it was Sinestro or some other scoundrel in disguise there to mess with Hal's head. Mind, I wouldn't say Hal was ruined for twenty years. His white man's guilt pretty much faded after a few years, and Hal was pretty consistently himself. Just ignore the skeeviness with Carrie Limbo and Arisia. Yeah, just ignore that part. And Martin concludes with, I call a friendly foul on Chad naming Allen number one Green Lantern for his potential. Heck, the man lost his strip to a pooch. Well, the last bit of feedback I want to mention, I got an email about a week ago from someone named Ryan who had just listened to episode 10. That was the Phantom Stranger episode that I did with Rob Kelly. And if you remember back then, a lingering question was my memory of an infamous t-shirt that had five superheroes on the front and five on the back. Ryan wrote in saying, I heard your plea for proof of the super cool t shirt with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, art, and I can verify that the t shirt exists because I still have mine. The heroes are beginning to crack, and it's got a small stain on it, but I still wear it because it's amazing. I know your question is old, but I wanted to let you know that your recollection of the shirt was perfect. I'm enjoying the Secret Origins podcast too, even if I'm months behind. Maybe I'll catch up this summer. Well, Even though that mystery was solved several months ago, and thanks to Al Girding slash Van Z for finding the shirt on Facebook, I do appreciate Ryan leaping to my defense almost a year later. And I hope you continue with the show, Ryan, and enjoy listening to every episode as much as I enjoy producing them. That is going to be all for this one. As always, big thanks to my guests, Siskoid and Aaron Moss. Check out Siskoid's shows here on the Fire & Water podcast network, and check out Aaron on the Head Speaks podcast network, including the G.I. Joe podcast that I regularly guest appear on. And of course, thanks to you for listening to this show. Thanks to everyone who promoted the show on social media, whether you're liking or sharing on Facebook, or favoriting or retweeting on Twitter. Please continue to submit iTunes reviews and leave feedback on the website just as long as you're not bitching about the music selection. Once again, this week people complained about the song choices I used, and you know what happens when you complain about the music. That's right, you get more My Chemical Romance. Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or you can send an email to ourdailypodcast at gmail.com The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed in the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
2: The awful names at the stick You're never gonna fit in much, kid But if you're troubled and hurt What you got under your shirt will make them pay for the things that they did They said I'll take